0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Father, you are a God full of mercy and steadfast love and us your people in fresh and in new ways every morning and we say thank you great is your faithfulness to us. We are gathered here today in need of a new and and special type of faithful love an illumining love that will show us what this passage is about and a gracious compelling love that will move us to follow it. So that's we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand and help us to follow. But would you please, God, over all of that, drape some fresh taste, some fresh comprehension of you in all of your goodness, drape that over this text and over this morning, so that as we understand the facts of it and are compelled to do it, that we understand and then press on, in a sense, wooed by you and softened by you and thankful for you. Teach us in love and draw us in love this morning. What there is before us is, is a, a task in a real way, something that we are to do, But the fact that we are to do it, the fact that it can be done, and what it is that we are trying to reach in the doing is all a tremendous sign of your good and gracious love to us, your people. And so cause us to see that. Give me words that are clear and helpful, and give us minds that are focused and attentive to clear away distractions where there is sin in in our minds or hearts, where there is sin in our midst, would you lead us even now to, to forsake it, to confess it and repent of it and turn to you and would you relieve and heal? Father, would you commission your spirit to move empowered in this room here to teach and to guide and to correct and rebuke and encourage and train in righteousness that we would be changed, that we would be a people who are after you and who are who are fully engaged in the pursuit of you for your glory and, and for our great good. We need that from you, and so Father please send your spirit now upon us. He is always present but would you send him in a way that is particularly powerful even at this time and loose blinders and shackles and Give us sight and freedom to run. Show yourself beautiful and enticing for us to chase after you with whole hearts and, and please be found, be caught. Bless your people this morning, I pray. Build your church. Honor the church's ruler, its king, Jesus. We look to you for these things, Lord, and and say thank you. You are good and you are strong, so we trust you. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Philippians chapter 3 where we find the Apostle Paul continuing on in his discussion about the wonder, the goodness of knowing Christ. He got into this subject beginning the chapter by way of warning a pointed negative treatment about some false teaching that he was concerned might come and and attack the church. And so he wanted to to point that out, to expose it, and to attack this this false hope, this idea that we should place confidence in, what we even can place confidence in the flesh. That was the phrase that he used repeatedly there in verses 3 and 4. The belief, the idea that Who I am and what I do and what I have done is is good and sufficient to make me right before God. That it even has anything to do with making me right before God. Placing of confidence in myself and in my own doing. Paul's worried about that and so he warns the church against it even while illustrating that if in fact that was the game that we were supposed to be playing, I would have won because I have much to be confident in but it isn't. It's all false. So he sets that aside and and then turns their attention from the negative to the positive and and calling up before their eyes the sweet and amazing the sweet and amazing truth that Christ can be known and is meant to be known and then talks about him again and again and again and again and again and again again every verse and every phrase he wants to know Christ and be found in Christ to be found in a righteousness that is not his own. This is verse 9. A righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness not that comes from what I do and what I attempt to do and how I perform and how God evaluates that. If that was the judgment, I'd fail. We're all sinners. But a righteousness that comes from God to us because of Christ's death on the cross that we receive. Paul celebrates that in points out that that's how we stand forgiven before God and that's how we receive the greatest treasure ever, Christ himself. That's what he's after. To know him, as we talked about last week, verse 10 and 11, and the power of his resurrection, particularly a power that helps us to walk with Christ through sufferings in this life. To know the power of the resurrection and the sharing in the sufferings becoming like him in his death. A daily dying to self that we can do as we remember and set our minds on what happened when the new life came to us in the resurrection. Paul's intent on that commends it to the church, sings of how wonderful it is. Which brings us then to our passage because he then immediately in verse 12 and following hastens to clarify, but I don't have all of this yet. Not in its fullness. There's more to be had, more to be experienced. A bit like a relationship, if you think about two people in a relationship, you're married, for instance, you don't get like 10% of your spouse when you get married, you get 100% of your spouse. But you don't know the person all the way down. You know them more and more and more as the years go by. You don't get just part of them. You get all of them, but then you get them in increasing depth. That's what he says. I I got all of him. We get all of him when we are saved, but there's more to know. So here's the point for this morning, drawn from verses 12 to 16. Let me put it in a sentence. Mature Christians... Press on every day all the way up to the last day. Mature Christians press on every day all the way up to the last day in pursuit of more and more of Christ. Mature Christians press on every day all the way up to the last day in pursuit of more and more of Christ. I'm going to unpack that through three observations from verses 12 to 16. Before I do that, though, let me read. I'm going to begin in verse 7 because it is important. Some of our translations put a break at verse 12, and it's slightly misleading. We think it's a different idea. He's just continuing on from verse 7 and following. So I'm going to start in 7 and read on down through 16. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, i going to make three observations. The last one's quite short. be worried when we get there. Here's the first one. God has saved us for our deep enjoyment of the greatest of all prizes. God has saved us for our deep enjoyment of the greatest of all prizes. First observation I'm going to make, I need to draw out a bunch of things to get towards it, because it might not be obvious immediately where that comes from. But I put this first, because as I was praying earlier that God would drape over this, this whole thing a, a wondering heart, a, a, an atmosphere of, of awe that would cause us to celebrate and to rejoice. This is the part that might, that might push that forward, there is something coming about what we are to do, but before we get to what we are to do, there's just something beautiful to be seen here. Verse twelve begins, "Not that I've already obtained this." And what is the this? We got to answer that. What is the this that he hasn't already obtained, or as he continues in saying, verse twelve, says he hasn't been perfected in. What's he talking about? And he means perfected. That root behind that word there is about a final or an end goal. So he means perfected in the sense of I haven't attained this, that is, I haven't reached it all the way to the end. He doesn't, he's not talking about being unblemished, like pure, perfect in that sense, but perfect as in mastered, fully, perfectly, completely possessed. So what is the, the this that he doesn't have everything about, everything grasped on? What, what was he talking about? Well, the answer is found in what he has mentioned in almost every phrase of the last five verses. Beginning of verse 7, and on and on and on and on, he says, Christ, 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 with slight variations to him. He's about this setting aside of everything for the sake of Christ. About counting this as rubbish to gain Christ. I want to know Him. What Paul is in hot pursuit of in all of life is the knowing of Christ. That is his great aim. Not not a simple intellectual understanding of facts about Jesus, but a relational knowing, a connecting to, a joining with and walking with so that he communes with Christ. And he's driven hard at that, talked about how he wants it, talks about how he set aside everything to get it. And then he hastens to clarify, but, but I haven't already fully attained this. Not in a, in a done deal sense. And then he says the same thing again in verse 13 with a little more emphasis. Brothers, we could put in sisters, because the feel is, guys, Seriously. I know you might look at me, the apostle, and you might, you might have just read this, I said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It sounds like I, I am like this with Jesus. And I am, but I'm not. I am, but there's more. Seriously, I haven't attained all of this, which means that you haven't either. It may be hard to believe, but there's more. There's a fullness that is yet to come. What does he mean? Well, obviously he's a Christian, so he doesn't mean that, that I only have 10% of Jesus and I want to get the other 90%. He, he got all of him when they were married, so to speak. Paul is in Christ like every true biblical Christian is, and yet there's something more that he wants. Keep reading verses 13 and 14. We see another picture, another presentation of it. I haven't made it my own, but one thing, this is literally says one thing, I have a single focus, and then he moves into a race analogy. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal. Maybe your translation says the mark, that's the finish line. I press on towards the finish line so as to get this prize. Prize of the upward call of God on my life in Christ. The heavenward call of God in Christ. The prize for which he has called me to heaven, the fullness of something that I have in part now but will not receive fully, increasingly so, increasingly so, but fully, completely. I I cross the finish line. I receive the prize when I get to heaven. That's the Father's full intention of calling me, he says. And he's using call. Clearly, he's using call in a saving sense, not a calling to an apostleship. The call that he's placed on every Christian. I called you to be with me in heaven. I call you to win a prize. So think about this. You've got to think about what the prize is And then you think about the God who gives that kind of prize. Christian, what God is after. Why Christ laid hold of you. You didn't lay hold of him. Why he laid hold of you. Why he called you upward, called you heavenward in Christ so that you would experience and enjoy the unhindered, fullest expression of union with Christ. You are united. If you're a Christian, you are united to Him. You are in Christ. But that in many ways now for us is is blocked and hindered and twisted. Sin and fallenness all around us makes, it, makes our experience of what it means to be united with Christ tainted and troubled. We have it in part now, but it's, it's hard to see through this glass dimly. One day, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you'll see him face to face, unhindered. The experience of and vision of Christ that will draw you out and, and give you, cause you to see with your very eyes one day. You, you'll hear, you can maybe see it with your mind's eyes now, and you can maybe understand the English words, but you will one day see it with your very eyes. You will see his great beauty. I don't just mean physical handsomeness, I mean there is a beauty in God. Every attribute of God, all of His attributes in all of their their glorious multifaceted splendor will be clearly seen by you. You will see His great goodness. that Everything He does is right and pure and helpful and beneficial and sweet good. You will see His great power That everything he wishes comes to pass. You will see his great creativity in a world made new. You will see the depths of the the wonder of his design. You will understand all the intricacies of his salvation plan worked out over generations. Creativity. You will see his great mercy. We catch some piece of it now. We understand some idea that God is merciful, but we have no idea how merciful he is because we have no idea the depths of our sin right now. But one day you will know His great mercy. You will understand His great grace that gave Himself to us over and over again. You will understand a great and wide and long and high and deep love that is who He is and is for you. I can say this in English. And, and certainly those concepts are familiar to you. If, you. if you're a Christian, you've read your Bible, it's not news to you that God is a God of mercy. It's not news to you that he loves. And, and perhaps as I talk about it, you, maybe you, for a second you think, oh, yes. But do you understand that one day you will cross the finish line and oh my! You catch that? You've read it in the Bible, you know it you hear me say it you understand it maybe as I say it now the spirit moves on you in such a way that you see it. it's a little bit more of it oh he is a God of great mercy because he forgives me of yesterday and he is a God of great grace because he came beside me and propelled me and helped me last week I see a little you're right but one day oh my and your union with him will be fully experienced as it was always meant to be Because God, this is the point, because God meant it to be for you. What a God. This is, I think, amazing. God did not if you choose the words from verse 12, Christ Jesus made you his own not just to forgive you. Not just to get you to heaven. God called you, if you use the words of verse 14, the upward call, the heavenward call of God in Christ for you, specifically for you. He calls everybody generally. He calls his people in Christ. He chose you and called you not just to forgive you, not just to get you to heaven, but for this reason. Oh! Think about that. Think about that. He's not interested in just cleaning you up and forgiving you. He's not even interested in in creating a perfect, sinless world in which you get dropped off and left to go your merry way. Though that would be marvelous itself, wouldn't it? Can you think of cleansed from sin, placed in a sinless world, never to sin again? That would be marvelous. That's not the point. He reached down to grab you, make you His own, possess you. Or He called you up to come and be with Him, to forgive you, to get you into heaven, to get you to a perfect place so that you could know Christ in the vastness of His beautiful being. To know all of these things that you know now in part, to know them in fullness one day. What your heart was made for will be filled up and satisfied in you in a stunning and glorious way and it will change you so that you will never hunger nor thirst ever again. Not that you shouldn't hunger. You won't hunger because you will be full. Not that you know I shouldn't thirst after other things. Your thirst will be slaked forever with a river of delight. It will chase away all desires and all tastes for other lesser goods. It will defeat sin in us and make us all new. This knowing of Him. It is a marvelous, marvelous reality that Christ can be known. And it is marvelous that. God saved us to know Him. He called you upwards to receive that prize. He called you to Himself to fill you with Himself to the never ending delight of you. Not in some idolatrous way, not not in some, let let me satisfy you with the creation, marvelous creation that it is, but let me satisfy you with me for your great good and for my endless glory. Because do you see what would come from that? If this is what you see and this is what quenches your thirst, you'll spend forever saying, oh my word, thank you and give me more, which is to the glory of God. That is a prize that is of surpassing worth. As he says in verse 8. He calls you to it. And so I invite you to think about that and to worship and give thanks. That's where you're going. Yes. and It, it, almost, sounds, it almost sounds silly to diminish this. Yes. You're going to a new heaven and a new earth where there is no sin and where there is no sorrow and where there are no more tears. Yeah, 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 yeah. You see why it's almost silly to diminish that? Because that itself is glorious and that itself is a testimony of the goodness of God. That is awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because most importantly, you're going to a place there where you will see Him and you will know Him. All because God says, I want to give you something awesome me. That's the first point. That has to hang over everything. There is something to be had. Something to be obtained. Something to be run towards to grasp. And the second point then talks about running towards it to grasp it. Here's the second observation. We are to press on to take possession of this great prize in its fullness. We are to press on to take possession of this great prize in its fullness. Paul says the same basic thing twice. These back-to-back verses here. He says, I haven't already obtained this knowing of Christ, this full, perfect communion with Him, Verse 12, he says this, but I press on to make it my own. And then in 13, 14, he says the same thing again. Brothers, seriously, I don't have it all, but 14, I press on. It's the same verb twice. And when you combine that with, with verse 13's straining forward, we get a clear picture of expending focused energy to know Christ to enjoy full communion with him, the fullness of this great prize. Which may seem odd to us. It might seem odd if we have a slight misunderstanding about something important about how God's salvation works. It's easy to think, well, I'm a Christian, Paul's a Christian, so we are, in fact, in union with Christ. We are in Christ. And so therefore, while the fullness is not yet enjoyed, I grant you that, yes. And I can imagine how there's more, yes. But, but surely it will be. So despite what he says, it, it kind of is a done deal. It's going, the rest of the story is going to write itself. I have been hauled out of the ocean with the life preserver and I'm back on shore or I'm on the deck of the boat. So what's all this talking about straining forward and pressing on? I mean, it's going to happen. What are you talking about? A number of Christians talk like this. And sometimes they do it because they're confused about something. Sometimes they do it because they want to defend the gospel against works. I don't, I don't like any conversation, so it, so it goes. I don't like any conversations about the gospel of grace and faith that has anything about striving or anything about pressing on or working in it. There's a misunderstanding there. I've said this before. I stole this phrase from somebody else years and years and years ago. I can't remember who it was. But write this down and think about it. Grace and faith are not opposed to work. Grace and faith are opposed to merit. Write it down exactly like that. Grace and faith are not opposed to work. Grace and faith are opposed to merit. That should be obvious if we consider Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. As we said clearly then, it's not work for your salvation, it's work out your salvation. Given your salvation, work it out. Salvation and work fit just fine together. Salvation and merit don't fit fine together. There is nothing that we do in any of our working, in any of our striving that puts us in any place where we deserve, have earned, have gotten one leg up or one inch up towards being rightly forgiven. Like we should be. We merit it. We deserve it. That is entirely contrary to the gospel of grace received by faith. But the gospel of grace received by faith does indeed set us to work. So this this idea of striving and pressing on belongs in this discussion. Paul never uses the truth that he is indeed saved and will indeed end up in heaven. He's fully convinced that everybody who's saved ends up in heaven. Fully convinced of that. But he never uses that truth as a reason to relax, but as a reason to work. He says, because, this is verse 12, because Christ has made me his own. That's why, because, that's why I press on. It's the motive, not the release from, the motive to. Because he has called me upward to receive the prize in heaven, I run. It's the motive to not the release from. What's he he thinking? How's he thinking about this? He's thinking like this. Paul's thinking, and we're supposed to think, as if he's that man that Jesus taught about who saw the treasure in the field and sold everything he had to go buy that field with the buried treasure in it. It's, It's as if Paul's seeing himself as that man and seeing every Christian as that man, or a woman, I suppose, You now possess the field with all the treasure buried in it. It's yours. And if you continue on with the analogy here, you know that sometime years and years and years from now, all that treasure will be completely exhumed, given to you for your eternal enjoyment of it. The kingdom. Christ the King. Years and years and years from now. It will be completely brought out of the ground for you to enjoy forever. It's yours. You know it. But what will we think of the man who said... But I'm not motivated to dig up any of that right now. Let's just leave it all in the ground. I'm fine, as I am, without any of that treasure at the moment. I'll forgo any experience of that treasure now. I'm good. I think we would have to wonder... Why is this man okay living this life right now without this treasure? Does he actually think there is really a treasure? Does he actually think the treasure is actually treasure? Does he actually think that he's just fine in life right now without the treasure? Does he really understand how bad life is and how good the treasure is? something's wrong here. At, at least we would feel sorry for him for living beneath his birthright, beneath what he possesses, and we might actually raise the question of doubt. Maybe you don't think it's actually there. Or maybe you don't think it's worth the effort to dig it up. I don't think you understand the treasure. I don't think you understand what your reality's like right now. Something's not right here. You understand the analogy? You indeed, Paul, indeed, you indeed, if you're a Christian, you have this treasure and you will indeed know him. But it's all buried in your backyard right now. Dig it up. And if you don't, I want to ask why not? Do you actually believe there's a treasure in your backyard? Do you actually believe you need it? That it's worth every effort you could possibly expend to dig it up? Brother, sister, this treasure, leaving the analogy, Christ, to know him is worth everything. It is of surpassing worth right now. Dig it up. Press, run, strive. Not to get the treasure, but to enjoy it. Him. That's how Paul's thinking. I'm not, I don't have to run to get it. It's mine. I have to run to enjoy it. To find it and to live with it. To find him and to live with him. Strain every muscle, Christian, to mine out this treasure. You should run to win. Press on to grab it. It's there to be had. We are to press on to take possession of this great treasure in fullness, increasingly now all the way to the end. So we, it's important that we, leave, that we leave the analogy, leave the metaphor, so we understand what in the world we're talking about because it's not actually a race. It's not actually a a, middle, a medal or a ribbon or a collection of gold. I mean, what, what, what do we mean here? So when he says, verse 13, the one thing, forgetting what lies behind He's got a race analogy here. Nobody, nobody runs a race like this. Now, Sometimes you, may, you might glance to see where the opposition is, but you run forward. So forgetting what lies behind, and in his context, he, he does not mean like overlooking your past mistakes or, or never mind where you came from. What he means is the stuff that was in my past, just look right up above, I forget what lies behind. I forget the fact that I am a Benjaminite, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, righteous according to the law. Never mind. I set that aside and move on. And I set aside and I forget everything else that the world offers up to me. I count everything, in fact, as a loss. He's just changing the loss-gain financial analogy to a race with a little more vigor, a race analogy. So I count it all as loss to gain Christ. I forget all this stuff to run on to gain Christ. Just, Just change analogies here. Forgetting what lies behind. Christian, place no confidence in the flesh. Don't bank a bit on who you are and what you've done and what you do, and be very aware. Have eagle eyes for all the things that the world will offer you to say, this is what makes a life, this is what fills you up. Count it all as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth. Forget it all and strive forward. What does that mean? Straining forward, running, pressing. Obviously, he's got energy here. He's got, he's got effort. Very similar to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We set aside confidence in the flesh in what I do. We set aside the awareness of all the things that the world offers to me and in the, the striving, and the pressing, as I'm moving forward, what do I, what do I then do? A couple of words. I'll, I'll give you three words, and they all fit together. Obedience, surrender, and faith. In, in every moment of every day, a striving runner what that looks like is somebody who is running to be obedient who is exerting effort to be obedient who wants to know what does god say and how does that fit in my life obedience and, secondly, surrender. Obedience with a surrendered, or you could use the word, humble, lowly and contrite heart. So there's a doing there an obedience and an attitude with which you do it, a humility. And the third word is critical. It's not just number three. It's like meta three. It's around the whole thing in faith. It's the obedience of faith. The submission, the surrender, the humility of faith. It says, this is what I am to do and I will do it in faith. I will do it believing. Believing that on the other side of my obedience lies the God who is good and who will meet me and sustain me and carry me forward. I will find him there on this path. And in particular in this book, he wants to outline that path is the path of dying to self, of considering others' needs more important, of sharing in the sufferings. Obediently, in faith, I will step into what you command me, God, believing in faith that on the other side of my dying to self I will find you and I will find your life pouring into me. I will not be abandoned and left empty and dying, but I will find I am sustained. How? By a supernatural relationship that somehow allows you to sorrow but rejoice. I don't know how that happens, but it does. And in faith, I will step into that situation humbly and obediently. Again and again and again, in a moment by moment, what striving or pressing after Christ to know Him means is obedience and surrender in faith a fighting to believe that God's promises are true that he is worth it this is maturity which leads me to the third point Be a little more brief on this point, but I make it a separate third point just to give it a little bit of emphasis. Such pressing on to possess Christ is a characteristic of spiritual maturity. Such pressing on to possess Christ is a characteristic of spiritual maturity. At verse 15, Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Think, really, verses 7 and following, all of that, but especially verses 12 to 14. Mature people, and there's a bit of a twist here in that that word mature is the same word as perfect up in verse 12. So Paul's saying, you'd hear the similarity if you were reading the original language. Paul's saying, I'm I'm not done. I don't have it all completely. And people who are mature know they don't have it all completely. I'm not done. And people who are done know they're not done. Press on to get more. People who are mature in Christ are not focusing on their behaviors, their performance, or their pedigree. And they're not caught up in pursuing the things of the world, but they are constantly in pursuit of more and more of Jesus Himself. They are not just after obedience, and they are not just after an attitude of humility or just after an attitude of love. Or they are after obedience in a humble laid-down life way that is characterized by faith because they want to know Jesus more in the here and now. And they don't think they have enough of Him. The view that what life is about, what, this is how the mature person thinks, that what life is about is the knowing of Christ now on the way to the knowing of Christ fully then? The mature person thinks, What's going on is that God has reached down to grab me so as to in every so as to move me through life on, on an often circuitous and confusing and twisting and turning path where I will be. I will be faced with options and temptations and troubles and fears and questions. And in all of it, I am to respond in obedient, humble faith. And He's doing all of that so that I would know Him. And knowing Him would be filled with Him. And being filled with Him would worship Him. That's what's going on here. The mature person thinks like that. The mature person is... Let me put it differently. It's discontent in a very restful, joyful way. Not discontent in a morose, angst filled way, discontent in a restful, joyful way. The mature person says, I know that Christ has taken hold of me and I know that I am called upward and I know that I am racing and pressing and striving and there is more to be had and I want more of Him. I I must know more of Him. There's a discontent. And bless the Lord that I know Him now and I am right in the middle of His controlling sovereign hand and He has me and holds me. will never leave me nor forsake me. (sighs) Restful, joyful in the striving. if any of you think differently on this, think the point of life, think the point of the gospel call is something else, well, there's a, a little point here and, and evidence of Paul's belief of the point. He just says, well, God will straighten you out. <laughs> and I'm done talking about it. Just live up to what you already know. The last sentence. Let us hold true to what we have attained. He's writing to this church in Philippi. They're Christians. They're believers. He knows that. So he says, if if you're if you're off on this, if if you don't see the pursuit, the point of life, if you, you that's okay. Just walk in what you know, and God will take care of that. I believe it. Meanwhile, I'm going to run. He's quite clear about what is right, about what should consume us, about what marks spiritual maturity. It is a pressing and a running day after day after day, not to get saved, not to get a relationship with Christ, but because I have a relationship with Christ, because I have a vast treasure given over to me, because of that, A life lived pressing and pressing and pressing to know Him more, to experience more of that now all the way along this path that is the path that leads me home where I find it in fullness. Run that path, Christian. Dig it out of your yard and enjoy it now. And that kind of earnest desire, that that kind of, of life lived out That's the life of joy. It's the life of joy, and it is the path that leads to the fullest of all joys. It is mature thinking to get up in the morning and say, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ right now, more and more, and to die is to gain Christ in fullness. So, if I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better to win the prize. But while I'm here, I will work for your progress and joy in the faith, and I will call you to press and to run to know Christ. That's the goal. Let me pray. <clears throat> or would you help your people to press after you? And as we sit and, and think, would you give them prodding and encouragement and correction, whatever is needed? Give them hope. Give them grace to help them set aside all the things that entangle them, sin and other and to run the perseverance the race marked out before them. Help your people, Lord. Draw near to us now. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801 943 0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah. 84121